But I needed a break from Paul. I like Paul. I like what he has to say. But sometimes I like a little human interest story. I just do. You ever watch TV and it's like you'll find yourself, and guys, don't lie, you found yourself on Hallmark Channel, and all of a sudden you're drawn in emotionally and you're like, I don't even care about this, but I'm in. Maybe that's not you. That's me. I won't put that on you guys. Um, But for me, um, I needed a little break, and as I was talking to my pastor a couple weeks ago, I told him where we were and um, what we were looking at, and he said, well, why don't you teach the book of Daniel? I was like, you know, I haven't really considered where we would go. I, my thought is I'm always chronological, so I thought we could start in Genesis. But we'd be in Genesis for probably a couple of years because it's kind of a long book. Um, but that said, um, he said Daniel, and he challenged me. And so I started reading it, and I was in. And so here we are in the book of Daniel this morning. Um, and we're going to have to lay a little bit of background but Daniel is a book that's uh, kind of unique in that it, the original writing was done in Hebrew, and then in the middle section it was done in Aramaic, and in the last section it was written in Hebrew. And it's because of the different audiences for each of the things that are being written. Uh, Daniel was a prophet, and we've talked about prophecy and how it has multiple aspects. Prophecy is not only the foretelling of things to come, but it's also the fourth telling of the Word of God, teaching what God's Word says. And when you speak the Word of God into someone else's life, you are, in a sense, just that. You're a prophet to the people that you're speaking to when you do it. So in one aspect, when I get up here on Sunday mornings and I teach God's Word, I'm prophesying in that I am teaching God's Word and what it says and that it's true. Um, So Daniel was doing that. But we'll find out that he did it more than just with words. He did it with his lifestyle. And he ends up, over the long run, having an influence over one of the most ungodly nations and kingdoms that's ever been on the face of this earth. And so what we need to realize is that the theme of Daniel is living a godly life in an ungodly culture. Now, we can all relate to that. It's hard. It's not easy. And so when we start Daniel, we cannot start with the book of Daniel. We're actually going to have to do a little bit of a survey of the Old Testament because in Leviticus chapter 26 and in many other places, God pronounced blessings on the nation of Israel and cursings. And you think, well, why would he pronounce cursings? Well, really, when we disobey God's word, when we disobey his simple commands, we're really cursing ourselves by doing that. We're calling his wrath to be upon us when we disobey or when we rebel. But in chapter 26 of Leviticus, he pronounces in verse 1 through about 13 the blessings for those who will obey God's commands. He starts and he says, basically in chapter 26, verse 1, he says, You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord, your God, and you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuaries. I am the Lord. So it's kind of a retelling of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, if you know anything about the nation of Israel, they started to worship the gods that were in the land that God gave them because the pillars and the idols were still set up once they wiped out all the inhabitants. 
He says, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain. And he promised blessing. He promised practical rain to grow their crops. He promised that they would always have something to eat. And this was a a practical way that they could know whether or not they were walking in the will of God. If it stopped raining, then they need to check themselves because they might be disobeying the commandments of the Lord. Now, we need to be careful applying this to the lives of ourselves or to others because that was specifically the way that God chose to dealt with the nation of Israel. We don't have to deal with it that way. Now, would you say that in many cases when the weather gets bad, sometimes we go, well, they must not be living right, and there might be something to that. But naturally, it's not always the case. Uh, there, the rain go- falls on the just and the rain falls on the unjust. That's what the Old Testament teaches in Proverbs. And so what we need to realize is that it's not always the reason. And we see that in the story of the blind man who was, Jesus came upon a blind man and his disciples asked him, he said, who sinned, this man or his parents? And that question comes up, right? You know, we see somebody driving down the road and we go, you know, they, they must not be managing their finances, right? They don't have a car. Well, you don't know that. We possess and we put judgment on people. But what Jesus said is this man was born blind so that the glory of God would be revealed. Jesus heals the man, and then he is shown to be the Messiah. God's glory is revealed in this man's weakness and then in his healing. And so there's all of these blessings, but if you go down into verse 14 in Leviticus 26, he says, but if you do not obey, and that's a big but, that's, that's a contrast word. He says, you will be blessed if you will do these things. And then he says, but if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. And then he begins to list cursings. And so I'm going to read through some of them. I'm not going to read through all of them, but you'll get my point. He says, I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease, fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. You shall sow your seed in vain. Your enemies shall eat it. In other words, you guys will plant crops, they'll grow up, but it'll be in vain because you'll never get to eat them. He says, I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. In other words, you'll be scared at very little things that are not scary. You'll run away. Now, in his promises to them, as if they would go into the land the way that he told them to, then he would actually chase out their enemies. They wouldn't have to fight for themselves. The Lord would go before them and prepare the way. And so then in verse 21, he says, If you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate." And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me still, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. 
And when you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. He says, when I cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven. In other words, they'll all be baking, but it'll be very little food. And then he, he says there in verse 27, after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, I also will walk contrary to you in fury. And what he says basically to them is if you go into this land that I've given you and you disobey my commands, you don't live as if I've called you to live, then he said, this is what's going to happen. The land itself is going to spew you out. The people of the land will overtake you. You will not have vengeance on your enemies. You won't be able to wipe them out. They'll actually consume you instead. And so this land that they took by faith also had to be kept by faith, if that makes sense. Uh, Just like in Exodus, when God provided the manna, he gave them food to eat miraculously in the dew of the morning, and they were to gather a certain amount. And if you read our Bible study together this morning, that was the focus of the passage. He said that, that when they gathered the food, they also had to eat it, and man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So they were given bread, but if they didn't eat it the way and take care of it the way that God told them to, guess what happened? They kept some overnight, which God told them not to. It would grow maggots overnight, and it would have a stench. It would not be a blessing anymore. It would be a curse. And if they would eat it and not keep any overnight, then it would be good. And then the day before the Sabbath, gather two days worth. And guess what? It would keep through two days, even though every other day of the week, it would go rotten over the night. So you'll eat it, and you'll be sustained by it. And this life of faith that they were called to, they would also get to live it by faith. But they also had to do it according to the way God told them to do it, by his words. They had to follow his instructions. And so God, over the years, was patient and gracious. He gave them different ways to judge themselves. Um, And during the time of the kings, after King David and King Saul and all these kings, there was raised up among them a king who was more wicked, Scripture says, than any of the other kings. And his name was Manasseh. And Manasseh was a man attributed to the wickedness that went for king after king after king after him. If any king was wicked, it always said he followed wickedness and lived evil just like his fathers before him. And it's always referring to Manasseh. And if any man lived by faith, uh, good, bad, and otherwise, if he was a repentant man with a man after God's heart, if he was a good king, he was attributed to being from the lineage of David. And so there's these, these different kings. And so um, God, in his sovereignty and in his protection, he basically rules over this nation through the kings. And the kings, as they lead, so goes the nation, as in any nation. As goes the leadership, so goes the nation. And so we see this in our day and age. It goes with the administration or with the policies based on who is the forefront, or even just, in our case, many ways people give the president good or bad marks based on everything that happens. And while he does have influence, it also goes down to local leaders. Uh, They have influence as well. We can't blame one man. But the point is that as the leadership of any nation goes, so goes the morality of the nation. 
And so in 2 Kings chapter 23, we're zooming forward in the nation of Israel. There's been a lineage of kings since Saul and David and then Solomon. And then Solomon's sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they have a little bit of a to-do. And the nation splits into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, to dispel some confusion, this it messed with me for years as I was reading Old Testament scripture. When they call the kingdom Israel, they're talking about the northern kingdom, which is confusing because the whole nation was called Israel. But then when they talk about Judah, the kingdom of Judah, they're talking about the southern kingdom. So there was a split because of a disagreement between the rulers. And there's a whole story along the lines of why that happened, but we won't get into it today. But in the nation of Judah, in the south, there's an, a king by the name of Jehoahaz, and he was a descendant of Manasseh and Hezekiah. So Jehoahaz, it says in verse 31 of 2 Kings chapter 23, was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned for three months in Jerusalem, and it tells his mother's name. Uh, his mother's name was Hamotal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. He followed their tradition. Now, remember the cursings, that if they did not follow the ways of the Lord, there would be judgment and discipline from the Lord. So it says in verse 33, Pharaoh Necho put him in prison at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in place of his father Josiah, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Pharaoh took Jehoahaz and went to Egypt, and he died there. So this nation essentially has been overcome by the nation of Egypt. They've taken over leadership. They've done a, not a coup, but basically they've come in and they've said, we're taken over. And they set up their own king. So this was a direct fulfillment of if they did not obey the precepts and the statutes of the Lord, that God would give them over to the leadership and the rule of their enemies. And so they took over. Verse 35, it says, Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give money according to the command of Pharaoh. So not only are they taken over, but now their money is being taxed and given to another nation. They're being pillaged uh, through a governmental facility, but they're being pillaged. They're being taken advantage of. And he exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land, from everyone according to his assessment, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Pediah of Rumah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. So Jehoiakim was the king from B.C. 609 to 598 B.C. And then Judah says in chapter 24, verse 1, in his days, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, many of you are probably familiar with Nebuchadnezzar, not necessarily because you're a historical buff, but maybe because you've read your children's storybook Bible, which those are some of the most famous stories from the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, rose up, and Jehoiakim, 
became his vassal for three years. To be a vassal means essentially to be a puppet king for another nation. If they didn't like the king that you had, they'd come in and conquer you and say, hey, we're going to set up a king that will do what we want him to do. Now, notice this. Jehoiakim has played the fiddle and done whatever Egypt wanted him to do, taxed his own nation, and now Jehoiakim, even though they're taken over no longer by Egypt, Egypt is defeated by the nation of Babylon or the kingdom of Babylon. And so their king takes over and lets Jehoiakim stay in, right? So, and he becomes his puppet. He becomes his person, his vassal. And uh, it seems like Jehoiakim is kind of like a Judas. He'll serve whoever will pay him, you know? And so Jehoiakim, he exacted the, excuse me, In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. Then he turned, notice, Jehoiakim rebelled against him, and the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, and bands of the people of Ammon, and he sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servants and the prophets, Surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh. Manasseh had reigned four kings before Jehoiakim, and yet because of the evil that was in Manasseh's reign, that evil didn't just live in Manasseh's day, but it was passed on to four generations of kings after him and ends up becoming the undoing of the nation of Israel, or excuse me, the kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah, according to all that he had done and also because of the innocent blood that he had shed. Manasseh's reign became so evil that one of the gods and the idols that was being worshipped at the time was Molech. And Molech was this molten idol made of gold or brass or something where they would essentially, the, the, the god, the idol, had hands that were held out like this. What they would do is they would kindle a fire underneath these hands, and that fire would heat up these hands till they were molten and hot, red hot. And then because in order to worship Molech, they would practice sexual immorality, they would have fornication going on, there would be children produced from those relations, right? Sin produces fruit, even sexual sin, something that God gave to multiply and cover the earth with, our descendants... People do it in a sinful way and create these unwanted pregnancies. And so as a part of their worship, it would make sense that they would take these unwanted babies and they would sacrifice them to Molech. So when these hands are molten hot, they would take these babies produced from this fornication, they would lay them on the molten hot hands and let them be burned. That's the depravity that this nation of Israel, this nation of Judah had gotten to. So God is not willing that any would perish, but he also disciplines those whom he loves. And he called out this nation to be set apart and different than all the other nations. And they ended up being just like all the other nations. They were changed by the people that were around them. They were changed by the things that were going on. They turned their hearts away when God had blessed them in their prosperity. They turned their hearts away from the living God and started serving idols. And when they did this, Sin brings forth death. And in this, a very practical, obvious way. Now, how are we much different than this nation? I don't see a big difference. We serve the idols of success and prosperity 
and, and God's blessing has been upon us, and yet now we're doing the same thing. It's just that we don't have an idol. Our idol is us, success, our free time. Being parents is hard, but many people create these children or produce these children from their lifestyles. And their children may not even be children. They could be other people's families. And because of the idol of success, uh, we're killing other people and we don't care about people. And so that said, this is the nation of Israel. This is where Judah had gotten to in the southern kingdom. And Judah was better off than the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom actually went into captivity way before Judah did. But Judah, because they didn't learn from what happened in the northern tribes, fell to the same thing. So um, a lot of people would ask, how can a God of love judge this people that he claims to love so much uh, and send them off to captivity? Because essentially, as a result of this, the people end up getting sent to another land and dispersed, and the nation is to become no more. That's, that's God's judgment. He told, him, he told them if, if they would not obey, then he would scatter them as his judgment. But I wrote down for you what uh, Warren Wearsby, uh, a well-known commentator, said. He said, God would rather have his people living in shameful captivity in a pagan land than living like pagans in the holy land and disgracing his name. They were to be different. And so I would say to you that many times, because of our own sinfulness, God allows judgment and he allows discipline uh, so that we would be sobered and brought back to reality and go, wait a minute, maybe I'm not living the way that God's called me to. So um, there's another passage in Isaiah, and we're not going to go there this morning. Aren't you glad I told you that? And change it up a little bit. So that brings us to the book of Daniel. Because they're experiencing God's judgment. God has, by his hand, uh, sent them away. And actually, if I'd have read the rest of that passage in 2 Kings 24, it says in verse 13, he carried out, uh, he says, it says that Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months, his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Ethan, Enathan, I'm going to butcher these, of Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. And at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. You know what besieging is? They set up uh, basically a barricade around the outside so nobody can go in or go out. And so they are stuck there with all the provisions that they have. And that's it. So they essentially try to starve, starve them out. Make sure they don't have water. Make sure they don't have food. And so um, it says that they, Nebuchadnezzar besieged them. And he came against the city as his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, and his officers went out to the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him as prisoner. So they took away their leadership, and he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. Also, he carried into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains, excuse me, captains, all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, 
and all the craftsmen and the smiths. Essentially, everybody who had a trade, everybody who had influence, everybody that was educated, he took them away from that nation. He wanted them as a nation to lose the remembrance of their identity. He's essentially tearing down the living monuments of all that God had done in that place. He's taking away their gold. He's taking away their, their stuff from their place of worship. And it says, none remained except the poorest people of the land. He carried Jehoiakim captive to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty land he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, 7,000, craftsmen and smiths, 1,000, all who were strong and fit for war, so he took away their army so they couldn't fight for themselves, these the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. So, now Daniel, chapter 1. With this is the background. God's disciplining his nation. He's judging them. With this is the background. We have the book of Daniel because at that time, Daniel was alive. So it says there, in the year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Remember, Jehoiakim was the king that Egypt ruled over and then the king that Nebuchadnezzar ruled over. The nation's leadership was horrible, could be bought. And so in the the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. We just read that, right? So in that context, that's the facts. That's, That's the historical data that we need to know. But anytime something is going on historically that can be published in the news, recognize that God's hand of protection and power are not beyond being in control of that situation. When nations are raging, when wars and rumors of wars are going on, God's still in control. And I say that because read verse 2. Talking about the same events, but talking about it from a different perspective. Verse 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of the king of Babylon with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So why was the nation given over to the king of Babylon? Well, we've already read it, but Daniel restates it. God gave them into the hands of their enemies. God did. He even gave them some of the articles of the treasure house. And what he did with those articles, with the gold and some of the, the vessels, we'll find out later, the, the cauldrons, the things they drink out of, the vessels that were built for the worship of God in the temple of God, is he takes them and he puts them in the storehouse of the temple of his God. Because in those days, their gods were the ones they looked to for strength. And when they would battle and defeat another nation, They'd attribute the the battle to their God. And then they would take the spoils and they would give it to their God as an offering and they would use it to worship their gods. And so these articles that were meant to worship God were given over to the other gods. Interesting thought. The sins of the nation of Israel and the kingdom of Judah in this case were that they were worshiping and they gave themselves over to the worship of idols. And so as punishment, God sends them to a nation that is overcome with the worship of idols. Isn't that interesting? God essentially gave them what they wanted. He gave them what they were practicing. You want idols? I'll give you all of them. You go and be in a nation where they serve idols, you'll see what it's like living there. And if you've ever been to a nation where they serve idols, whether it's Africa, whether it's India, 
those idols rule their lives, and those idols absolutely, they, they become more important than people. And they serve the creature rather than the creator. And so people start to get treated like they're animals. And they are cast aside as basically worthless. Uh, I've been to India, and I've seen this first and foremost. It's not a pretty thing. So they're getting sent off to this nation. So it says there in verse 3, Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants, meaning the descendants of Judah, anybody that was of royalty, these would be educated people. He said, Bring some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men, in whom there is no blemish, so, uh, but good-looking and gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. So this is another name for the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. You'll see it over and over. So the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them. Three years. They're going to be trained for three years, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So we get to zoom in. There's this probably about 11,000 descendants of the king and nobles and tradesmen that are being put in this training program for the kingdom of Babylon. And they're going to be trained in several ways. But what I want to point out is these guys didn't pick to be put in this training. They didn't enlist. Their nation was captured, and they were put in a foreign land, and they were forced into this program. Now, were some of them willing? I don't know. If someone came into our nation and gathered 10,000 of our people, took them to Syria and said, we're going to make you servants in the kingdom of our, our Lord or our sovereign, our king. I don't know that too many of us would be high-fiving on the way in the door. You know, we, we like to do what we want to do. But notice how they handle it. These men uh, are going to be demanded of to conform to the image of a servant in the Babylonian kingdom. They're going to be told to conform. And I know that because there's four ways that they train these men. Number one, they isolate them. They isolate them from their culture. They set them apart for this training program for three whole years. So they isolate them. Number two, they indoctrinate them. Notice that it says they're going to teach them the language and the literature. What is bound up in the literature of a culture? Their culture, their ideologies, the way they think about things. And so if you don't go into this with a proper perspective, you could be completely brainwashed and changed by this. Think about it like college, right? We go there to learn the trade. As Christian, Christian parents, we send our children to a school. We pay them to teach them things. But what do they also learn while they're there? Not just the skills, but also the culture. And in many ways, they are forced, and in many ways they choose, to go the way of the world. Many Christian children go off to school knowing what they believe because their parents told them. They've never made it their own. And so when they get there, you know what God does? He's there with them, 
But if they're listening to the culture more than they're listening to him, and most of them will, they're going to come back home and they're going to be completely different. Now, the reality is they're going to be what they really were. What is in them is going to develop into full fruit. So the question is, do you know who you are? And are you, uh, we'll get there. I'm, I'm, I'm rushing. So they're going to train them academically. But what, as a result of that, they're also going to become more like Babylonians. Number three, concession. Notice verse five. They're going to get catered meals. The king's meat. This is king's meat. I don't get to eat like no king. Now, many times I do. But they're going to get the best of the best. And they're going to get the king's wine from his vintage. I mean, isn't that pretty great? Think about it like this. If somebody's trying to get you to work for their company, and maybe you've been in this situation before, maybe you haven't. When I got out of college, I was being courted by several places, not because of my academics, just because I was willing to move. But when I got there, they would send me to, one company sent me to the Adams Mark Hotel. You can see the Mississippi River. You can see the arch. The flag was waving right outside the window. And anything I want from room service, anything, they paid for it. And so they're, they're already trying to win me with gifts. And in many ways, that's what the Babylonians were doing. Hey, notice what our culture has to offer. And can you imagine being anywhere to 14-year-old to 20-year-old walking into a, a Babylonian city after living in Israel? I mean, Israel's great, but it's an agrarian society. Now come into the metropolis. Walk into this nation where the, the walls are anywhere from 60 to 80 feet wide surrounding the entire city. It's like huge. And they walk in, and it looks like, to the untrained eye, a carnival. Imagine taking them to six flags and then saying, hey, don't ride the rides while you're here. What? I want, some, I want one of those big old turkey legs. They don't have turkey legs back in Israel. We got to eat kosher. Actually, turkey's probably kosher. I don't know. But my point is, is that these young, impressionable men are being taken away from their parents, and they're going to a place where anything goes. And now they've got to choose, do I really want to serve God, or do I want to serve my belly? Do I want to? And so the idea is they're trying to get them to concede, this way of life is way better than anything God's ever had for us. And number four, confusion. They give them new names. Now, at a glance, this doesn't seem like a big idea because in verse 7, it says to them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. No big deal, right? Well, they're just translating, they're just translating their names to, to their language. That's all, right? If you're reading it, you might think that. But actually, Daniel... His name means God is my judge. Hananiah means beloved of the Lord. And not just any Lord, but Yahweh, the God of Israel. Mishael means who is like God. Azariah, the Lord is my help. So Daniel goes from God is my judge to Belteshazzar, which means may Bel protect the king. Bel is one of the Babylonians' many gods. So changed his name to a foreign name. Shadrach means illumined by the sun god, Ra. So his name is probably actually pronounced Shadrach. Um, Meshach means who is like Aku, the sun goddess. And then 
Abednego means servant of the shining one, Nego, which is another of their gods. And so he not only strips away their names, which I don't know about you guys, but our name becomes some synonymous with who we are. That's why we named Lucy, Lucy, because Lucy means light. We want her to point people to Jesus. We named Judah, Judah, because it means praise or contentment. We want him to praise the Lord. We want him to have victory. And so we gave him those names because of who we want him to be. So if somebody would take Judah's name away and make it like something that means surly or, you know, aggravated, you know, that, that strips him of the identity we're trying to pour into him. Now, he's going to be who he is. I get that. But by our names, we have an identity. So in order to deal with that, and in order to conform them to their image, they transliterate their names into something that to us might seem no big deal, but they're really trying to change who they become. They want them to be sons of their gods. So notice what it says. The world is trying to conform them. And in uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it actually says this. Paul writing. I see, I said I was a little bit worn out with Paul, but I'm still quoting him, right? It writes in verse 2 of chapter 12, Do not be conformed to this world but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Conforming has the idea of pressure from the outside changing you. Transforming has to do with change on the inside transforming you, changing you from the inside. So that transformation power by the Holy Spirit given to us is a higher pressure, if you will, than the conforming pressure from the outside, but we have to let him continually fill us with his spirit because otherwise we're a sinking ship waiting to happen. We could have the same things happen to us as the nation of Israel does. But notice what it says in verse 8. It says, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. The rest of this book is affected by this verse. Daniel's life was different because of this verse. Daniel purposed in his heart. The heart is the center from which everything in our life takes place. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it proceeds the issues of life. It's the source. If you got anger, if you got frustration, if you got hatred, it all comes from the center of who you are, your heart. Now, I'm not talking about the thing beating. I'm talking about your soul. So Proverbs says, keep your soul with all diligence. Out of it proceeds the issues of life. Daniel is a young man from the age of 14 to 20, somewhere around there, probably around Stephen's age. And he has purposed within his heart from a young age, I am going to do what God says no matter what anyone else says, no matter what it takes. And I know that because he's not at home. He's not surrounded by people high-fiving him because he doesn't want to defile himself. He's surrounded by people that are saying, you know what? Just conform and be quiet. You're going to cause problems. 
I just want to get through this training. Look at this. God's already given us this position in society. We have influence. We've got all this good food. Just let it happen. And Daniel says, I'll let them change my name. I'll let them move me. But there are certain things I will not let happen because I know who I am because of who, whose I am. And so in this verse, he says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies. Why? What's the big deal? Well, they weren't supposed to eat meat with blood in it, and many nations did. Why? Because the life is in the blood. That's what Leviticus says. So they were supposed to drain all of their meat of the blood before they cooked it. Another reason? Many of the things that they were eating, the meat, was sacrificed to idols, and they were not supposed to serve idols. Now, in Christ, we don't have to worry about that anymore, unless we're going to stumble somebody that it does bother. We always need to let our hearts be ruled with the law of love. But the idea is, is his word, what God told him in the Old Testament was, don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols. So you know what Daniel took that as? Don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols. That's simple. He took it at face value. He didn't try to spiritualize it. He didn't try to change it. He just obeyed. It was his faith. I hear the word of God and I do it. So as he does this, notice the long-term effect this has. And also notice Daniel with his, four, his three buddies, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, they don't say anything. Daniel does. Even among his peers, he stood out. It says, now God had brought Daniel into the favor and the goodwill of the chiefs of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, look, I fear the Lord, the king, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Reasoning that if you don't eat what they're eating, you won't be as in good shape, in as good of shape. And so I'm going to be in trouble with my Lord. And it says there, then you would have endangered my head before the king. The king could have me killed for not obeying the portion he has set for you. So Daniel said to the steward, he didn't say, no, I won't do it. What he says is, hey, he's using wisdom. He says, perhaps, he says, so Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. He says, test your servant for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then after the 10 days, let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, based on what you see from that, as you see fit, deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and he tested them for 10 days. So for 10 days, Daniel ate what he was okay with eating because he trusted that if he obeyed the Lord, God was going to bless them and show himself strong upon their behalf. He was going to give them favor. And so it says there, verse 15, at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. And that day was actually looked good if you were a little bit more plump. In our day and age, you got to look practically anorexic before people go, hey, you look great. Look, you're doing great. And I say that because my pastor had, he was sick for a long time and he had uh, problems with his throat and he couldn't eat as much. 
And because of that, he lost a bunch of weight. And he said, you couldn't believe how many people came up to me and said, you're looking great. You've been on a diet? What are you doing? He's like, no, I'm sick. I'm dying. You know, like, and he thought he was going to die during the sickness. He's like, no, I'm not healthy. <laughs> Isn't that sad in our culture? That's what people think healthy should look like. You could see his bones. So now he's fattened up a little bit more and he looks better. But my point is, is they, they said, hey, they, they looked fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the king's food. Thus, the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, consider this. He didn't just take away Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He took all of, the, all of the people that were in this program. They hate Daniel now. They were eating good. Vegetables and water? Thanks, jerk. You know, like, what in the world? You know, I don't like, I don't mind vegetables, but don't just vegetables. That's just, uh, I don't know if you can say jerk from the pulpit. So if I offended any of you, I'm sorry. But I mean, that's what they're thinking, right? They're thinking, what in the world? This young Israelite, yeah, God said, but we're eating good. And all of a sudden, we got to eat vegetables. Um, Pop, it was good for Popeye, but I guarantee that wasn't the only thing Popeye was eating. So he replaced their, their meals. So he's already had influence. So verse 8 is what made Daniel the man that he was. He made a choice to be distinct. And this is what made Daniel shine and eventually gave him great influence. Daniel wasn't looking for an excuse. He could have easily. Um, but he instead knew his purpose. He knew his purpose, and therefore he obeyed accordingly. He purposed in his heart, and he had a reputation. Think about this. Reputation is who you are on the outside. No doubt, there is something to reputation. But character is who you are when nobody's looking. And I I read that somewhere, and I was like, that's good. I'm going to use that. Um, Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. That's superstition but obeying in spite of consequences. So Daniel obeyed, even though there might be fallout. But here we're going to look at this last part, where it says this in verse uh, 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And for Daniel, he had understanding in all visions and dreams. So God gave, he he honors loyalty. Uh, Daniel was loyal, God honored it. He gave them the ability to understand the language and and to speak it fluently. We know that from this book. He wrote Aramaic for a portion of it. So it it came easy to him to learn new languages. Not everyone is that way. (laughs) Not everyone's that way. I tried to learn Spanish in high school, and I had a class dedicated to it. Now, I wouldn't say I was dedicated, but I had a class dedicated, and I didn't pick it up. Not everybody can learn languages. Not everybody can learn to build things. Not everybody's a silversmith or a blacksmith. People are gifted by God to do these things, and that's what it says here. At the end of the days, the three years, when the king had said they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king interviewed them. So he wasn't just training these guys. He was personally interviewing them to see how they were doing. 
And among them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. And it was a large realm. This isn't like he was the who's who of America. This is like he's the who's who of all the nations. It was a huge kingdom. And so it says that, thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So here's what you need to know. Here's the backstory. Here's the influence that God gave Daniel. It wasn't just for the time that they were in. Because of Daniel being wise in his interaction with the eunuch and with the king and allowing God to work in his life, even though he's in a horrible, cruddy circumstance, taken away from his family, taken away from his nation— changed his name, uh, even though what we're going to find out is that Daniel was a thermostat, not a thermometer. You ever heard that? What's a thermometer? A thermometer is something that reads the temperature around it. And based on the temperature, that little line raises up with the mercury. That line is affected, and the temperature reading is affected by the temperature around it. But a thermostat doesn't work that way. A thermostat has a thermometer in it that tells you what the temperature is, and then it does what it can to affect the temperature of the room so it gets to the desired level. Daniel was a thermostat. Daniel was not changed by the culture. Daniel changed culture. We find this out as we read this book, but what I want to show you is that from 605 to 536 BC, this was the year of King Cyrus, 70 years. So 605 is the year of Jehoiakim, and then Nebuchadnezzar takes them over. And then what we won't see clearly, but it's true, is that Nebuchadnezzar had a descendant who became the next king, Nebuchadnezzar II. And then after that, so in chapter 1, 2, and 3, Nebuchadnezzar I is the king. In chapter 4, it's Nebuchadnezzar II, or Nabonidus is what they call him. And then after that, in chapter 5, Belshazzar is the king. Now, Daniel's name, his Babylonian name is Belteshazzar. The descendant of King Nebuchadnezzar is Belshazzar, so that's confusing. Um, But that's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And then the Medes of the Persians, another kingdom, another nation, comes in and conquers, takes over leadership, and Cyrus becomes king 70 years later. Okay, So when that kingdom switches leadership, Daniel is still given authority to be a member in the council for the king. So Daniel has 70 years of leadership in this nation, even though he's not even a part of it because of God's blessing on his life, because he's set apart and because God has given him influence. But let's zoom forward even more. In Matthew chapter 2, there's this group called the Magi. And they mysteriously come from the east And they come looking for a Jewish Messiah, who we know to be Jesus. But why are these Mede and Persian priests coming from a far nation to look for a Jewish Messiah? That makes no sense. They've got their own gods. Well, many believe and attribute that fact to the fact that Daniel had such an influence on their culture that there were even priests and authorities that believed what he said because of his reputation because of his character, and years down the road, I think it's around 500 years later, these men leave everything 
and travel for days and nights and months to find Jesus as a fulfillment of the Messiah for the nation of Israel. That's the influence that Daniel had on this Babylonian, probably the most worldly nation that ever existed, all because he was willing to obey God. How cool is that? So let me ask you, in your relationship with the Father, in your relationship with Jesus, as he's filled you with his Holy Spirit, and as he's prodding on your heart to do the things he's called you to, are you someone who is influenced by him more than you are the culture you're surrounded by? And do you realize that the influence that God has on you is for more than just you and your family? It's also for the generations to come. It has a ripple effect. It's like throwing a small stone into a large pond. The ripples will reach the side, whether you think they do or not. And the ripples of your life will have the same effect that Daniel will if you'll be set apart and you'll simply obey the Lord. Now, obeying the Lord's not simple, but if we'll be simple and obey what God shows us each day, you can have an effect like Daniel did. Daniel wasn't looking to have an effect. He was looking to please God and bring glory to God's name, however that came about. And as a result, we have historical writings that show that he did. So how cool is that? We have the opportunity to be a part of God's plan to rescue people who are lost and in need of a Messiah. So we're going to take communion this morning. What I want you to do, we're going to do what we always do. I'm going to play a song of worship. I want you to spend some time with the Lord and, and ask yourself, am I a thermostat or am I a thermometer? And as you ask yourself that, Lord, let the Lord search your heart. We take communion as a monument. And I say that because I was thinking about monuments this morning. We watched the news. People are tearing down monuments. No matter what your political affiliation is or what you think of it, I'm, I'm not about that. Monuments are there to remind us of what happened in the past so we can learn from it and so we can learn and so we can be changed. So we don't have to, we don't have to be doomed to repeat it again. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We remember that as a monument through communion. It's a, it's a monument. As we come to the monument, the monument doesn't save us and it doesn't affect us unless we let it fulfill its purpose. To remember what God has done, what he did in salvation on the cross, to remember and to see what he is doing or maybe he's not doing that we're not letting him do in our life right now, and to look to the future and say, Lord, what are you planning to do? I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get there. So spend some time with the Lord and ask these questions and let him search your heart and then we'll take communion together after the song.